1: Hello, everyone, and welcome to this edition of New Books and World Affairs. My name is Matthew Rafferty, and I have with me today Ethan Zuckerman, internet entrepreneur, media scholar, activist, and I think it's fair to say true citizen of the world. He's uh, director of MIT's Center for Civic Media, um, and he's here today to discuss his book, Rewired, Digital Cosmopolitans in the Age of Connection, uh, out on Norton Press. Uh, First of all, uh, hello and welcome, Ethan.
0: Thanks so much. Thanks
1: for having me. Uh, First, I want to congratulate you on what, uh, at least to this reader's eyes, is a fascinating read, a sharp analysis, um, and really a bold call to foster rich human connectedness across our increasingly technologically linked world. Um, uh, But I'd like to start off with a little background. Can you tell us um, uh, where you're from? what what schooling was like and how you ended up in this world of um, cosmopolitanism and transnational media?
0: Sure. Well, uh, my, my back story doesn't make a ton of sense in terms of what I actually work on. I am uh, a refugee from the New York City suburbs. Um, my entire family uh, left that area as soon as we could. And we all camped one way or another to Western Massachusetts, which is where I live and work today. Uh, I did my undergraduate education at Williams College in Williamstown, Massachusetts, and I've stayed remarkably close to home ever since. My wife is actually the rabbi of the synagogue in Williamstown, Massachusetts, and we live about 10 miles south of there. But while I was at Williams, my work took me towards a close look at West Africa, first through the lens of popular music, and I ended up... Uh, spending time in West Africa in 1993 and 94 as a Fulbright scholar, um, studying how traditional music had influenced uh, West African popular music. And since then, I've I've come back to the African continent uh, again and again you know, several times a year. And my interest and, and love for West Africa, which I really developed as an undergrad, uh, has become uh, sort of central to my career thinking about questions of how the Internet does and doesn't connect us around the world.
1: Uh, can you uh, talk a little bit more about that sort of disconnect in our sense of connectedness? I mean, it seems that that's one of the key themes uh, in in this particular project.
0: Sure. Well, this is one of these things where, You write a book, and you hope that it's going to connect to what's happened at a particular moment in history. And tragically, there is a a tremendous um, story going on right now that that the book in some ways um, is designed to talk about, which is the Ebola epidemic breaking in West Africa right now. Um, We've seen this uh, really quite scary disease become one of the major topics of conversation in the United States, Because uh, a small number of people in the U.S. have brought Ebola from West Africa, uh, either from caring for friends and family in West Africa or going over on medical missions to help with the disease. What's interesting is, you know, in November of 2014, this has become a massive and political issue. People are taking stands on how the U.S. should disconnect from West Africa to protect itself from the virus. Of course, the real answer is that we have been terribly disconnected in terms of information. Um, We knew as early as March of this year that there was a serious Ebola outbreak and that it would probably require international resources to combat it. And there's been very, very little media attention to Ebola in West Africa through most of this year until it hits U.S. shores. And so in some ways, Ebola really represents the problem that we're having. We're very connected physically. It's really hard to meaningfully shut the U.S. off from West Africa, and all these proposed travel bans probably won't do what people hope they would do. At the same time, we are actually surprisingly informationally cut off. And it's not because the information doesn't exist, It's really more a question of what we pay attention to individually and collectively. And so what I talk about in Rewire is sort of this paradox of living in an age that's very physically connected, potentially highly digitally connected, um, but often in practice extremely disconnected digitally. Uh, And I'm trying to explore what the problems are that result from that sort of a world and how we might go ahead and address that question of the digital disconnection.
1: Um, one thing I wanted to ask is is about that kind of process in the change, uh, the changing way that we receive information, that we receive news. And you kind of talk about a shift from curated news where um, a limited set of uh, professionals, however they're anointed, kind of select news for most people to kind of the world of algorithmic search, um, to, from there kind of the world of social where, um, on the one hand it feels, uh, more democratized because our friends and our connections are the ones that are kind of curating information and news for us. But on the other hand, um, that becomes, um, you know, there's more and more homophily. There's, there's, there's a narrowing that comes with that too. It makes it both much more personal, um, but also, um, there's a lot that we don't see can you talk a little bit about how that um how you see the the technology changing um not just how we get news but but what we see and what we miss
0: right so i think that as we've gone through this transformation not just to a digital newscape but a highly participatory newscape we've seen traditional gatekeepers lose a lot of their power so the simplest way to understand this is we've gone from a world in which most people in the united states were dealing with three nightly newscasts and one or two daily newspapers and that's where the media agenda was set to a world in which apparently the media agenda is being set from all different directions it might be being set by what your friends on Facebook want to talk about, who you choose to follow on Twitter. It might be set based on whether you take Fox News more seriously or CNBC more seriously or The Times of India more seriously. And I think at first, this looked like an extremely liberating shift. It looked like we were unseating uh, many of the old powerful institutions, Who might have had more control over our informational universes than some of us strictly wanted. What we may be losing in the process is that some of those gatekeepers had a very conscious social mission. They were working very, very hard to make sure that there was at least some geographic diversity in the news, um, some ideological diversity in the news, and it's quite possible that as we replace this either with Uh, basically putting our choice forward as the chief element in this, um, that we're ending up with a much narrower view of the world than we might have 30 or 40 years ago. Algorithmic curation makes this even trickier in that most of these algorithms are tuned around the idea of keeping us interested and keeping us engaged. And if the job of Facebook is to get us to spend more time on Facebook, it makes perfect sense that Facebook would give us a particular set of news, a set of news that we find interesting and engaging, we want to share it, we want to talk about it. The danger is that that may not be a very diverse set of news, it may not be a very challenging set of news, and it may not always be the news that we need about the world. Um, People have started raising interesting questions about were they getting more of the ALS ice bucket challenge on Facebook and they were getting stories about protests from Ferguson, which were taking place at roughly the same time. And there's some pretty good evidence out there suggesting that Facebook's algorithm may have been boosting the social share of those ALS ice bucket challenges, perhaps because they were sort of a happy, participatory, let's all join in, invite your friends sort of news, whereas Ferguson was an uncomfortable and difficult issue of racial politics in the United States. If we have algorithmic curators, and their goal isn't diversity or any other civic output, if their goal is simply to keep us interested and keep us excited, it might be that we're actually significantly less well served than we are than we were in a day where we had uh, somewhat unaccountable gatekeepers trying to give us diverse and civically important news, but not necessarily catering to our interests.
1: And, and yet at the same time, we feel like because so much connection is possible, because we can pull up any newspaper from anywhere in the world at a moment's notice, we feel like we should be getting or we might be getting more relevant information. But in fact, because of the way our social networks and other things are winnowing what we receive, we may be getting even less than we did when we had less media and is that does that seem right?
0: Well so I I talk about this um using an idea that I'm calling imaginary cosmopolitanism. And imaginary cosmopolitanism is speculation that the potential to pull up news from anywhere in the world, which is absolutely true of the web, it is theoretically possible to get information from anywhere that that sometimes fools us into thinking that that is in fact what we're getting. Um, I think that every time we find ourselves clicking around on the web and we find ourselves on a page in Chinese um, that we can't read and we don't read in translation, somewhere in the back of our head, we're giving ourselves a little pat on the back for being engaged in this amazing global network where information could be coming from anywhere. And in fact, the truth is, there actually isn't a ton of information crossing over from the Chinese-language Internet into the English-language Internet. There's a lot of crossover in the other direction. Uh, the Chinese-language Internet is actually very aggressive about translating English-language content. But I think that it's quite possible for us to hold on to this sort of dream, this sort of late 1990s dream of a truly global cosmopolitan Internet, And sort of fool ourselves into thinking that it's still happening. And I think in truth, most of the time, there's a lot of evidence that our media universes may actually be getting much smaller, much tighter, uh, much less uh, ideologically diverse, while we fool ourselves into thinking that the opposite is happening.
1: And is that a product of, you know, the rise of larger businesses on the Internet and in that space? Or is that a product of the... um, um, the way these algorithms are increasingly winnowing um, or framing what we see without us kind of understanding how those frames are being made.
0: Well, you you, you broached the homophily barrier before. So I was going to avoid using, <laughs> uh, using big social science words. But, but one of the things that I talk about in this book is the incredible sociological power of the phenomenon homophily which is the tendency of birds with a feather to flock together. And I think that we're just starting to see work being done looking at homophily on the Internet. There's terrific work done for years establishing that people self-source themselves into communities um, by socioeconomic status, by religion, by race. People are really, really good in the physical world of finding their tribe. And we're starting to see evidence that there's much of that same self-selection in the digital world. Um, In terms of choosing to participate in fora, where most of the speakers agree with you, um, choosing to um, seek out news that reinforces your own opinions. My friend Eli Pariser tried to make the case that the real culprits in this space are the companies like Facebook building algorithms that show you only what you want and not necessarily what other people think. And I, I think Eli is on the right topic, but I think he's, he's focusing too much on the algorithm. I think the real problem is that the internet increases choice and it decreases the role of those sort of gatekeeping intermediaries. And so left to our own devices, we're going to pick what we already know is important or what we already care about. And so if we know that you know, uh, U.S. politics is important or that Israel is important, we're going to spend our time and attention on that. And if we know that Guinea is not important or Sierra Leone is not important, we're not going to pay any attention to that. And I think what's happened more than anything on the Internet is this radical increase in choice has sort of amplified this tendency towards homophily and we now see it getting baked into algorithms, but even when it's not baked in, it's a very powerful force contributing to what we see in DC.
1: Mm-hmm. And is that, what's the solution that you would propose? Do we need more kind of professional gatekeeping um, or, or find a way that, that that kind of expertise and gatekeeping makes sense in Um, the way the modern world is connected. Um, You talk also in the book a lot about uh, bridge figures, xenophiles and bridge figures as ways to increase meaningful connectivity and and meaningful cross-cultural conversation and exchange. Can you talk a little bit about, you know, where you would want things to go?
0: Sure. So part of what I try to do in this book is not spend the whole time talking about the problem. So I tried to structure the book to be roughly half talking about my concern that we have a world in which there's a great deal of physical connections, connections of atoms, um, but much lower connections of bits, much lower connection of information, and making the case that the bits go to follow our desire lines, uh, and so far our desire lines don't tell us very much about the developing world in particular. When we go and look for solutions, I do think that part of the solution has to be in asking gatekeepers to take on more of civic function. And I do think there's a real challenge in the U.S. in particular where we've sort of allowed our civic media, our media that helps us figure out how to act in the world as political and civic animals, um, has abdicated a lot of that function in favor of a purely commercial function. And I think that trying to figure out how gatekeepers can help us be more global and be more engaged with the rest of the world is part of the problem. Um, But I think as we look for these solutions, we can't just rely on the gatekeepers because they're losing a lot of power and a lot of authority. I think we have to start looking at what I've referred to in the past as the caring problem. How do you help people care about people they are physically distant from? And the remedy that I've suggested there is investing in bridge figures who are people who connect two different cultures. This might be a Sierra Leonean living in the United States talking about the current experience with Ebola. This might be listening to a health worker who's gone over and volunteered in Liberia talking about a disease from that perspective it's looking for someone who has feet in two different cultures and who can sort of broker information between the two. The hope is not just that this person can broker contextualized information. Beyond that, we really hope this person can explain why they care about an issue and why you should care as well. And the hope is that as we change this sort of dynamic of caring for people in other places, we start getting closer to what the philosopher Paul Mayapia calls cosmopolitanism, which is this idea that we accept that we live in a world where people look at issues many, many different ways. There are a number of consistent, justifiable ways to be in the world. And while you don't have to live the same way someone in Ghana does, you may take on obligations and a sense of collective responsibility with that person from Ghana. And so my sense is going after caring is one of the first steps here in getting towards a media that helps us actually be highly informed about this mobilized work.
1: So in other words, we need to, the use of these bridge figures, people that can Bridge not just information, but kind of empathy and understanding across a cultural divide. They're going to help us um, be meaningfully invested across that divide, not necessarily amalgamated or you know, it's it's not a sort of melting pot argument exactly. It's it's more of a um, a kind of bridge of information and understanding.
0: Well, that, that's exactly right. I I am not. Trying to argue that we're heading towards a single and differentiated global culture. Uh, on the contrary, what I'm suggesting is that living in a connected world means understanding that we're going to be interacting with a lot of people who view the world very differently than we do, and that we need to take those people seriously, we need to take their viewpoints seriously, and that it may be very, very hard for us. Uh, to relate to those points of view if we don't have any points of common context. So bridge figures as being a mechanism for that common context. They understand where we are coming as people in the United States. They understand what it means to be living and working in West Africa. And they try to figure out how to sort of close the loop between the two. And then the hope is that by having sort of an emotional investment and these people bridging between the two, it's easier for us to relate to those stories. It's easier for us to take on those stories as meaningful to ourselves and then maybe propagate them and propagate our interest in them to people within our social network. Um,
1: so, I mean, in some ways, the book is or at least the the second half of the book is kind of a, a call for this, um, both in media, but also on, I think, a very personal level, right, to kind of foster a kind of personal attention to the world, a personal cosmopolitanism, or personal digital cosmopolitanism. Um, what are the, the sort of key elements for that on a kind of individual basis? And in particular, I'm thinking um, you talk a lot uh, towards the later part of the book about serendipity, and, sure. and the kind so, of need to have space for, um, you know, seemingly random information to be part of the mix.
0: So I, you're correct to, to say that the way I've tried to structure the book is that the second half is trying to set up solutions. And some of these solutions are for um, newspapers and sort of thinking about how they would take on diversity, Um, thinking about how journalism thinks about things like the bridge figure. When we start thinking about individuals, the, the first thing I sort of urge people to think about is this question of cognitive diversity. And cognitive diversity is really this ability to see a problem from multiple points of view. And you can bring cognitive diversity into your life Uh, by working on a team with people who come from very different backgrounds and very different ways of of thinking and looking at things. You can bring cognitive diversity into your life by putting yourself in situations where you're um, deeply outside of your home orbit. Travel can often do this for people, um, working uh, with with very diverse groups. Um, You can also get cognitive diversity by exploring and reading deeply in ways that sort of challenge your ordinary assumptions and challenge what you normally pay attention to. And so I take on this question of serendipity and whether serendipity is, in fact, engineerable, uh, whether we could actually work on this question of how could we give you almost a serendipity dial uh, in your encounters with media to sort of say, um, I'd like more things that are unexpected but also possibly desirable. What's so hard about serendipity is that it doesn't simply mean random chance encounter. Um, what it does mean is sort of an unexpected but helpful piece of information that you encounter in your searching. And so engineering serendipity isn't as simple as just turning up the amount of noise in your explorations of the world. It probably involves looking over your shoulder, getting a sense of what you are and are not paying attention to, and then being able to sort of push your lines of thought and exploration in an unexpected direction. To me, it probably has to do with learning a lot about what your interests are, what you're already investigating, what you're already reading, and then pushing in different directions. So for me, when I work with my students to think about how we would engineer Ferendipity in the lab, we often find ourselves playing with things like Twitter and essentially saying, okay, we can t- tell from your Twitter feed that you're interested in social media, that you're following the tech industry and how these different companies are developing, but you're mostly following experts in the United States. Can we find you someone who's looking at social media in China? And how would that challenge uh, what you know about the world? And would it give you information that's both unexpected and potentially very helpful? So, we've been building a lot of small tools to try to uh, increase the chance of serendipity in an individual's life in the hopes of helping people sort of take control of their cognitive diversity.
1: Um, I wanted to ask um, on the, on the, sort of the counter side of that um is there a danger is there a concern and how does somebody who wants to um you know be a true and good cosmopolitan um thinker and participator in the digital world um how do they avoid things like um exoticism appropriation um you know appropriation is kind of all the rage in discussions of art in the academy in particular. Right. A lot of what you, a lot yeah. of the examples in the book, you have sort of musical or artistic, um, uh, mashups and, and crossovers and connections. Um, but you know, that's also an area that's up to a lot of criticism. It takes, it takes a certain amount of privilege, uh, it takes a certain amount of privilege in the world still to be digital. Um, mm-hmm. but also to have access to multiple worlds, you know, a lot of the things that you're talking about that are important, um, to be this well, uh, well connected, but also, um, uh, you know, have the breadth of, of information. Um, these are things that require access and privilege and money. And how do you kind of, um, can you talk about how you kind of guard against um, sure, sure. You know, the dark well, side of all this, a, I guess.
0: Well, it, it's it's a really helpful line of inquiry. I would say that it, it's less a question that I get in talking about the book outside of academic environments, than it's the question that I always get inside academic environments. And I think we're very conscious in an academic environment of this notion of who has the right. To use a particular culture. And I try to look at this idea of bridging as a way of countering exoticism. Um, so, one of the arguments that I use that I, I suspect has been controversial and uncomfortable uh, ends up being something of a defense of Paul Simon's Graceland album, um, which was an album that was uh, quite controversial in some critical circles. Where people saw it as an appropriation of South African culture uh, to benefit the sort of hyperprivileged Simon. And then I started looking at some of the history behind it and actually finding pretty good evidence that uh, Simon, in many ways, was sort of recruited into the project by South African musicians who were very interested in, could they find a way, to put their music on the map in the same way that Jamaicans had managed to put reggae on the map. Uh, and if you start looking at the visibility of some of the types of South African music that came out of that collaboration and where it ended up professionally for many of those who were involved, you can make a pretty good argument that what actually happened was the United States and Europe opened up as markets for branches of South African culture that were otherwise entirely and completely invisible. So I think there can be this hypersensitivity to um, ensuring that people are always representing themselves through their culture. And I think that what's actually quite exciting about the digital changes we're going through are that that's very often the case. It's much, much easier now for me to pay attention to thinkers in South Africa than it was even 20 years ago. It's much, much easier to have that sort of nuanced debate about whether Paul Simon was doing the right thing or the wrong thing, because South Africans are now able to be directly part of that debate. There's clearly ongoing access issues, but the funny thing is that the access issues, I think, are much less severe than the issues of what we choose to pay attention to. There are over 10 million Nigerians currently on Facebook. Most of us don't realize this because we aren't friends with most of them, and the information is not filtering particularly well from the Nigerian Internet into the American Internet. For me, I've been surprised at how much the rise in access through pervasive mobile phones hasn't changed our informational picture. And so I think it's in some ways maybe a little bit too easy a critique to sort of say, um, we're putting too much faith in the Internet. Don't you realize that people are still poor? Do you have a right to try to bridge between these different cultures? Part of what I'm trying to say is you'd be surprised at how much participation in this is already coming from the developing world where we're not doing a particularly good job of bridging. And there, it's really a question, more of anything else, of attention and trying to figure out how you would discover and how you would find an audience for, uh, for some of these ideas.
1: So, I mean, in, in essence, it's less a question of, right, sort of a powerful, connected culture, scooping up whatever it can from around the world to its own you know nefarious or exoticizing usage um it's uh that there's already kind of digital engagement it's just that the information lacks the bridge figures to make um the the information travel in both and, and the connection travel in both directions is that
0: So I think what I'm saying is I would absolutely acknowledge that Exoticizing takes place, that it needs to be called out, that it needs to be challenged. What I would say is, at the same time, there's at least as much flat out failure to connect. And there are people in developing nations using digital media, often demanding attention in the developed world, and very little existing connection, either in our existing journalistic ecosystem or in this new digital ecosystem that we're building. And so it's not that I want to discount the exoticizing. It's that I want to suggest that there's another and possibly much more significant problem, which is that people in the developing world are using these tools. They're using them to be publicly visible and they're not being publicly visible. And That question raises, how would we go about solving that? And at one point or another, we're going to have to find some way to bridge those conversations. And so I think scaring people off of bridging with threats of exoticism is potentially pretty dangerous. And that we actually want to think about ways of celebrating people who do it respectfully and successfully.
1: Yeah, I think... um... In some ways, it it reminds me of the, you know, late 19th, early 20th century debate about um, anthropological inquiry, right? That sort of if we go to these places and we discover these supposedly disconnected cultures, right? We change them, right? Force comes with that. Um, Mm -hmm. And sure. But on the other hand, right? um, We need connection, you know, there are things to be benefited you know, there's great benefit on both sides if there can be a meaningful exchange Um,
0: So it's, a a lot of what I talk about in the book is this question of what happens when cultures encounter one another Um, and here I'm drawing uh, pretty heavily from Pippin Norris and Ron Engelhardt in a a, a really fine book they wrote together called Cosmopolitan Communication and what they end up suggesting is there's at least four things that can happen, uh, when cultures come together. Um, you can have a dominant culture sort of wash over, uh, the smaller culture. Um, and I think this is what we often hear, particularly when we sort of look at those fears coming from the emergence of anthropology, you know, is anthropology the handmaiden of colonialism we're encountering the developing world is the inevitable result that McDonald's wins. Um, and then go on to suggest that there's at least three other things that happen. Um, one is that you sometimes have violent rejection of culture. Uh, you have a culture come in from the outside, people saying no, thank you. And by the way, if you keep coming, uh, we're going to come at you uh, and attack you and prevent you from invading the culture. You have the possibility that I think, you know, a, a lot of us good cosmopolitan liberals hope for uh, some sort of a cosmopolitan fusion we get the best of one uh, culture interacting with another one. They ended up suggesting that in their research, looking at things like the World Value Survey and trying to sort of understand how people make value-based decisions, that what's possibly most common is sort of seeing another culture and shrugging and saying, well, that's very interesting, but it's not for us. Um, and they see a lot of evidence that you can have a lot of encounter with media from another culture and not have it really sort of change your core values. For me, the real question is, can you have interest in engagement with another culture and not necessarily have that sort of question of of whether there's uh, pressure to adopt the culture at the same time? So I'm not interested in these arguments of, you know, US is soft power, let's figure out how to use culture to convince everyone that democracy is the way to go. That's not the argument that I'm trying to make. What I am trying to make is an argument that says that if you're going to live in a hyper-connected world, if you're going to live in a world where goods and people spread from all over the place, we've got to get much better at figuring out how to listen to people, and that it's really, really hard to listen to people with whom we don't have a lot culturally in common, and we're probably going to need some help along that way. And so that's where I'm sort of trying to
1: identify uh, people and mechanisms who are taking on that task. Um, how optimistic are you about the directions we're going? Um, would you say, I mean, obviously you've, you've written a book that is trying to point out to a problem and pr- point to a problem and propose solutions or propose um, ways to address them. Um, do you see the trends as... Uh, where do you see the trends as positive and where do you see the trends as as negative is there is there hope for um, you know the sort of digital cosmopolitan approach to you know, to to win the day do you see um, you know do you have some examples of here 's where we're where we 're moving in the right direction and and here here 's where we 're not
0: well i I guess what I would say is I had hoped in writing the book that this idea of needing to be more connected to the rest of the world would strike a deep chord with people and that they would find themselves saying yes that makes sense I'd love to find a way to be more connected I've had less of that in the global north than I'd hoped for and I think a lot of people are saying that's really interesting but I can't imagine that being my main problem Uh, I accept your argument that Maybe we're not hearing enough from the rest of the world, but it's not my top priority. Where I found a lot of traction for the book and its ideas tends to be in the better-connected corners of the global south, where people find themselves saying, you know, I've now got information from all over the world. I can see how Pakistan is portrayed all over the world, and I really don't like it. And I want to figure out how do I challenge those portrayals How do I give people more of that local perspective? And so for me, where my hope comes out of this is the hope that the Internet and related technologies around publishing and disseminating information could, over time, be a really interesting way of trying to correct some of these imbalances. That we've got the capability of people in the Global South to represent themselves, to challenge existing representations and to try to push, not just to make their voices available online, but to actually get heard. And for me, that's where the challenges sort of come up. Um, So I am maybe less optimistic that someone at Google or Facebook in the United States is gonna read my book and try to figure out how to make this change. I think I'm increasingly optimistic that someone at a new startup tech company uh, in the global south might be influenced by this and uh, really sort of take this on and champion some of these
1: ideas. And so um, where where things you see going or where you, um, uh, one of the things you, you talk about at one point is, is kind of attempts or, or new moves to kind of build um, Silicon Valleys in the so-called developing world and build, you know, the, that ultimately it takes some limited technology that's, that's fairly inexpensive now and some coding know-how and, you know, not actually that much startup. It's, you know, it's, it's easier to build a, a a tech startup in some ways than the kind of traditional, I think often silly ideas that, that get freighted onto the developing world. Like what they really need is a shoe factory. Um, Shoe factories are great. In certain mm-hmm. contexts, but you know, if if these um, parts of the world can be uh, powerful disseminators of their own information, and that information can can reach more widely out, that's that's the sort of high bid. That's the goal. That's what you think will most address um, some of the problems you're identifying.
0: So I think that we're still very used to a unipolar world in terms of culture, particularly in the United States. I think we're used to this idea that innovation happens in the US, it propagates around the world, sometimes things happen a little differently somewhere else, you know, isn't the rest of the world funny, diversity is great. I think we are on the cusp of things actually changing pretty radically. And I think the first change here is China. Um, And I think that we're used to an image of China in which the U.S. innovates and China copies. Um, And I think that's shifting pretty sharply um, when you start looking at some of the remarkable uh, Chinese companies coming up, Um, not just in software uh, where you've got very different paradigms for communication, uh, but even in hardware with companies like Xiaomi. Uh, putting out a phone that is probably the most interesting thing to come out since the iPhone, I think we're starting to be challenged by this idea that we're going to end in, up in a, a radically multipolar world as far as creativity and innovation. And so, one of the things I'm very excited about being part of is trying to help nations sort of participate in that uh, economy. I do a lot of work in Kenya these days with a company called Ushahidi, which uh, appeared on some people's radar in the wake of the disputed uh, 2007 elections with a tool for crowd-mapping, a way for people to participate in making a map of violence in the wake of an election. And that tool became an open-source platform. That platform is now used all over the world. Ushahidi is now the anchor of a tech ecosystem in Kenya that's created about 2,000 jobs over the last five years and has a number of really interesting indigenous Kenyan tech startups. Um, And so I think once that stops becoming this sort of remarkable, wow, I can't believe that story, and starts becoming more routine, that's when I think we're going to see some really interesting shifts take place.
1: Um, And I think that's a that's kind of a a lovely uh segue to um to my last question is is where do you go from here um what are you working on um either as a writer or as an activist or as a you know crusader in the digital space um what what's next
0: sure Let, let me let me try to give you three quick answers to that because like a lot of busy people i'm interested in a lot of different things um This book in part had a lot to do with projects that I've been involved with for a couple of years, like Global Voices, which is now celebrating 10 years of being an online network for citizen journalism uh, from all around the world with an emphasis on the developing world. And that network is really refocusing on this question of sort of fighting the frame and challenging the narrative, uh, and essentially saying, we want to be giving narratives uh, from local perspectives and have them be influential around the world. So whether that's uh, the work in Kenya with Ushahidi, whether that's the work with Global Voices, trying to figure out um, how voices that that seldom get listened to uh, start becoming more vocal and more influential is a big issue for me. As far as uh, where my personal work is going, I'm doing a lot of work right now on questions of how civics is changing in a digital age, whether we're ending up with a different definition of what it means to be a local citizen as well as a global citizen, which is what I was really thinking about in this book. What does it mean to be effective? Uh, And is that about being involved with politics or is it looking for social change through other means? I'd say the last thing that I'm spending a lot of time on that I think a lot of people who have been on the net and sort of thinking about these issues for 20 or more years are, are wrestling with is do we have the web we want, and if we don't like what we have, do we still have time to make some changes? And I think that sort of 20 years into the commercial web, it's a fine time to sort of look at it and say, there are some things about how this works that don't make me really happy. Uh, And in this book, I was talking about the ways in which the Internet can isolate us as much as it connects us. I think you could be equally unhappy about the ways in which Venice is controlled by some very large corporate actors uh, who control the public spaces, the ways in which deeply uncivil conversations like GamerGate are taking place, or the ways in which this really open and generative space has turned into a heavily state surveilled space. And so, uh, I'm excited to see the beginnings of. Uh, almost sort of a rebel alliance of people looking at the web we have right now and essentially saying, that's all what we want, let's, let's work to make it better. So those are the things that, that, that excite me now, uh, and I hope to be both working on them and writing about them in the near future.
1: That sounds um, very exciting. I, I look forward to all of that in all of those directions. Um, I want to uh, thank you again for being on the show today, um, and I um, you know, look forward to to what's coming next. Uh, thanks again.
0: Thanks so much, Matt. I really appreciate you uh, bringing me on, and uh, thanks for the great conversation.
1: Thank you.